Oh, hello everyone. Uh, I'm Anna Ganey, Executive Chair of Canada 2020, and it is my pleasure to welcome all of you today. I would like to begin by acknowledging that I am joining this meeting, uh, this virtual gathering from Montreal, which is situated on the unceded lands of the Kanyan Kahaka or Mohawk Nation. We recognize the Mohawk Nation as custodians of the lands and waters of this place, its history as a gathering place for many First Nations, and we're grateful to continue adding to its rich history of exchange in person and in this virtual setting. I'd also like to thank uh, all of Canada 2020's partners and sponsors without whom today's discussion would not be possible. Thank you to our speakers for joining us today. Parag Khanna is joining us from Singapore. Uh, Warda Shazadi Mian is joining us from Toronto. And uh, in Vancouver this morning, uh, bright and early is uh, Kate Hammer uh, joining us as well. I'm really excited for today's conversation. It's uh, uh, the second in the series that we're hosting at Canada 2020 following COP26. Today we're focused on the urgent global climate uh, migration crisis brought on by climate change. Uh, over the past two weeks, we've seen in real time the impact of climate disasters within our own borders uh, with communities uprooted in southern British Columbia due to um, uh, the massive flooding. So climate migration is projected to create the largest amount of displacement we have seen in modern history. Uh, solutions can't wait. I think we can all agree. So let's get to it. Moderating today's discussion is the wonderful Kate Hammer, Director of Government Relations at Van City. And so on that note, Kate, I will hand it over to you. Thanks so much, Anna. And thanks everyone for joining us today. My name is Kate Hammer and I'm the Director of Government Relations at Van City. And I'm joining you from Vancouver, which is on the unceded traditional lands of the Coast Salish people. So that's the Musqueam, Squamish, and Salatooth people. And I live in a region that, as Anna mentioned, has seen a lot of climate disruption in the last six months. Over the summer, we saw a heat dome that had deadly consequences. Up to 700 people died. That was followed by wildfires that nearly wiped out the town of Linton, BC. And now we're dealing with deadly mudslides and flooding with more rain on the way. I'm lucky enough to work at Canada's largest credit union, and we've been reaching out to our members. We have many members in those regions who've been displaced more than once now. And we're talking to them, just checking in to make sure they have the, the access to credit they need to take care of themselves, extending loan deferrals to those who have seen lost income, and hearing a lot of worry. And I think that worry stems from the certainty that this is the beginning. This is not an isolated event. This is the beginning of more disruption for them. And it raises questions about where they live and the viability of how they can stay in their homes, where they very much want to stay. And I think that differential relationship to how climate change is playing out is, is something we saw play out at COP26. COP26, towards the end, there was a sort of a last minute disruption where two large populous nations, India and China, actually raised objections to language around the phasing out of coal. They wanted that softened to the phasing down of coal. felt that was the best way to serve the interests of their populations. Well, in the, these small island nations pushed back strongly and said anything but the most urgent action on, on climate change would lead to their certain annihilation and the loss of their So we share one planet, we share one atmosphere, we share one carbon budget, but globally, our relationship to climate change is very different. Canada, though I described some pretty serious events here in BC of late, and I know there's some unfolding out east as well. In general, we are poised not to bear the brunt of climate change. We actually have a lot of advantages. Um, just our geography, our freshwater sources um, mean that in general, we will be in a position to receive migrants and people fleeing much worse scenarios. At the same time, we have demographic challenges that could be addressed by, my, by migration. Uh, a uh, aging population, uh, declining birth rates, and labor market needs uh, mean that actually we have a big opportunity in this climate migration that's coming our way. So we're really lucky today to have two people, two speakers, who can really help us understand where Canada fits in all of this and where are the challenges and the opportunities can for Canada if we if we move in the right way. So I'm going to introduce our speakers today. Uh, first, we have Parag Khanna. He is founder and managing partner of Future Map and also the best-selling author of Move, uh, The Forces Uprooting Us. And then we also have Warda Shazadi Megan, and she is a partner at Landings LLP and co-chair of the Climate Migration Working Group at the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers. So 
Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. So I'm going to start with you, Lorda, actually, because I think I think we need to do a little bit of table setting and understand what is a climate migrant. And I mean that kind of colloquially, legally, what is a climate migrant? And is there a definition right now internationally or within Canada? There's no legal definition under Canadian law right now for a climate migrant. Various groups have proposed different definitions. The Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers has put out a report in the past few weeks, and within that report, they propose a climate migrate, my, a climate migrant, excuse me, being a person who is outside their country, and that country will be in their lifetime or has already been affected by environmental degradation, and if they are returned to that country, they will face a risk to their life security of the person or liberty because of that environmental degradation. And so it is this definition that is very firmly rooted in Canadian law in our international obligations and with a view to what other groups are doing that we propose to Canadian policymakers and legislatures to, um, to take a, a good, strong look at this definition. That's interesting. And I think I understand there's a decision that came down, a legal decision recently from the UN Human Rights Committee that actually looked carefully like some of those pieces about how you consider risk and the timelines of risk, I think were spelled out in that case. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes, absolutely. So it was the case of Tetiota. It was a decision of the UN Human Rights Committee. And now this decision is infamous. It's a historic ruling by the UN Human Rights Committee. Uh, committee that opens a door for the first time really to look at the nexus between climate migration and asylum. Until this decision, we really didn't have any um, international body connecting the two. And so uh, in terms of the facts of the case, uh, Mr. Tetiota was a citizen of a small island of Kiribati. It's on the state of Equatorial Pacific. Um, and within the next 10 to 15 years, he was going to be, um, he was going to completely lose his livelihood. There were rising sea levels, making lands inhabitable. Fresh water was being diluted by salt water. So a host of issues, deforestation. And he fled to New Zealand with his wife and children. He files a complaint um, to New Zealand for asylum, so for a refugee claim, and is denied. Then is deported back to New Ze uh, back to Kiribati, excuse me, and takes New Zealand to the UN Human Rights Committee and says that by deporting him, New Zealand had violated his right to life. Now, New Zealand, along with Canada, is a signatory to international instruments, and one of those is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. There is an article there, Article 6, that allows for the right to life, and you can't deprive a citizen or a person of the right to life. And so uh, he was arguing to the UN Human Rights Committee that depriving his right to life by sending him back to New Zealand violates Article 6. And this was the first time that the um, international obligation not to send a person back to their home country due to environmental harms was recognized. And in terms of the time frame, the UN Human Rights Committee said it doesn't have to be imminent. So both slow onset or, and immediate onset can be recognized. For Mr. Um, Tetiota, it was not a positive ruling in the end because um, the island of Kiribati was taking protective measures that were supposed to overturn the effects of the environmental degradation that he was um, fleeing from. But this was the, the upshot of this decision is that the effects of climate change, both long-term and short-term, may trigger the non-refoulement obligations of receiving states. So that's the <coughs> obligation that we don't set, send people back to risk. That's really interesting. So... I want, to, I want to move to you, Prague, and sort of kind of look at some of these, you know, the people like Tensiona um, and, and understand sort of who are the migrants we're going to see moving. Your book explores all these sort of factors that will drive migration over the coming decades. And I'm wondering sort of how much does climate factor into that? Who are the people who are going to be displaced by climate and where are they coming from and to? 
Great. Well, thank you, Kate, and thank you, Warda, for that uh, those opening um, sort of you know elaborations. And in a way, of course, when you're using the future tense, who will they be? You know, I think let's start with the present tense because, as Warda pointed out, in the, with that one example, there are many like it. Um, in fact, there aren't many though that are as fortunate to have even been able to undertake some kind of legal recourse. Uh, as this, uh, you know, case from the Kiribati, from Kiribati uh, illustrates. But just back up for one second, you know, historically, over the last several centuries, we've seen the number of migrants as a whole increase from mere millions to tens of millions to hundreds of millions in the 20th century. And in this century, no doubt, billions, absolutely guaranteed. There will be over a billion people, you know, crossing borders voluntarily or involuntarily in a semi-permanent or, you know, permanent way. Uh, we're already well on the way. And the composition in previous centuries has been roughly a balance between economic and political causes. It could You could go back to the slave trade. You could talk about the uh, you know, famines in Europe, obviously world wars and genocides and expulsions, partition of India and Pakistan. In every century, there's a balance between economic and political drivers of the tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people who become migrants. In this century, Kate, already in this 21st century, the number of people where you would say that the origin, the cause, the driver of their migration is climate related is, is greater than the number of political or economic migrants. Now, these things very strongly interrelate. We know that if you're talking about Darfur or Syria, other situations, there is a connection between political conflict and the underlying you know, climate conditions, most certainly drought and so forth. Um, so I don't want to split hairs around these specific causal factors. Migration is multi-causal, it always has been and will, will be. But the fact that, uh, oh, you're having a BBC moment. <laughs> uh, so the, the fact that, um, uh, that this is uh, that that uh, that it's happening more from the environmental, you know, if you will, sort of point of view is is not to separate it from the economic and the political. Um, now, I want to just say a word about um, you know, kind of expand upon what Warda said because if you take a situation where you're not dealing with a country that is party to all of these conventions, like in Australia or New Zealand, and New Zealand in this in this case interesting enough, has is the first country in the world to have like a climate visa program. So in some sense, I'd want to obviously learn more about why it was that he was rejected in the first place from his application. There must be nuances to that and so forth. But we can probably generally see there's a trajectory around New Zealand, um, you know, sort of in the long term committing to taking on, um, you know, permanent climate migrants, if you will, and giving them a pathway to permanent residency or citizenship. And there's only, you know, one or maybe two, WARDA can probably clarify cases like that in the world where a country has, you know, sort of declared such a forward kind of looking approach to the issue. But now, can we posit a situation like Syria, right? Because right now, European governments have deemed that Syria is stable enough that they can send Syrian asylum seekers, Syrian migrants back to Syria. And that's what European governments are doing right now. Even though there is a climatic, there's a climate underpinning, and of course a political one, those Syrians that are being sent back right now to a country uh, you know, that's obviously, that's still certainly very dangerous, they're saying, don't send me back. This is a, you know, obviously, um, you know, politically suicidal in some way. Um, they're not making the environmental case, but imagine if, you know, your, your, a European government right now is able to make that sovereign decision and say, we deem, we, the, the government or the court of Germany or Sweden says that sweet, that, that Syria is stable enough. We're going to send these people back. But can you send per people back to a country where there's no more water? Right, that are literally unlivable. And as I think Warda was, was uh, you know, suggesting, we don't have an international agreement around what you would do in those kinds of situations if there is no back to send someone to. And that is going to be a very, uh, you know, the, again, not a new reality. It's already happening. Look at Yemen and so forth. You, you should not be sending people back to Yemen. 
right? Uh, it is both politically and uh, and environmentally, you know, unconscionable to do so. And yet, in fact, we do. Um, so I think that we have to prepare legally for that scenario because it's already here. And now, just let me be very quick on on your on your you know main question really about you know sort of it's it's everyone everywhere to some degree because if it's wealthy people in British Columbia, and it's poor people in Yemen, let's remember that climate change doesn't really observe political boundaries or rich poor divides. It's a geographical issue. It's a global issue to varying degrees, and therefore, um, you know, I believe we need to prepare for a an entire sort of century of climate relocations and that's in the plural in the sense that there isn't one place i know we'll come to canada obviously more specifically but because the climate intersects with so many other factors you can't ever say for sure that just because a place is climatologically blessed in the way that much of canada is even if it doesn't feel that way when you're having an atmospheric river or a heat dome uh, these things are all relative right you're you know people are going to be better off somewhere else than where they are if there's drought um or flooding or whatever the case may be so you know i think that there's a lot of lot of issues that we have to come to grips with politically infrastructurally economically and most certainly legally i suspect warda could take us further on that 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 decision actually and there's a lot to i think pull apart in and no accident that i think this first decision comes from an island nation um, and, and someone living there who's, who's, uh, whose livelihood was threatened and probably ultimately just their home entirely. So we might be able to come back to this, but I do want to stay with you, Prague, for a little bit longer because I do think there's a lot, there's some kind of macro trends in the type, in, in how climate is going to be driving uh, migration. Um, you know, I think in your book, you, you describe a little bit too about sort of the, the latitudes where most of the population lives and then sort of the different latitudes in their relationship to how the climate will shift. Um, and some other things about sort of, I think there's a, there's an amazing line about, you know, coastal living, you know, going from, you know, something to dream of to sort of reckless luxury. Um, so can you, can you just map out some of those changes we see, we see coming? Well, when my parents were re recently retiring from in wanting to leave New York, uh, they told my brother and me that they were looking at a place down in Florida, which is like such a typical, you know, thing to even for you Canadian yeah. snowbirds. And uh, they were like, you know, you'll come visit us and it's a, you know, carbon neutral solar development. And this will be a great asset for us to pass down to you one day. We're like, you want to pass down something to us in Florida? <laughs> Are you joking? Like, you know, that's not going to be the beachfront place in the future, right? Uh, you know, I'd prefer probably Hudson Bay <laughs> at some point to, to, to Florida. So we, we literally cajoled my parents to move to kind of interior northern California. Mm -hmm. So kind of a clever, climatically, more like BC, basically, than like Miami. Um, so um, latitude. So latitude is one factor. Again, you know, I mean, you can actually see this map behind me. Uh, you know, you know, Visually. this this is the IPCC forecast around what the suitability change of certain of geographies are over time as temperatures rise. So obviously, your green patches there, places that are going to become more livable, are Canada, you know, Western, Northern Europe, Russia, and so forth, and. Um, but that's just one factor, you know, of course, because, you know, you could um, there are places in the northern hemisphere that are obviously going to be trouble. It's not all perfect because it's latitude, but also uh, altitude, elevation, right? Distance from the sea. Um, all of these kinds of factors play a role as well. But on a relative basis, sure, you know, the northern hemisphere is better off. And again, the deepest, most profound uh, I think, in most perverse irony on the planet Earth today. Please, let's intellectualize and see if you can come up with something more perverse than this. But the green zones on that map are the most rapidly depopulating places on the planet, right? Russia, dying. Japan, dying. Northern Europe, dying. Canada, sub-replacement fertility, um, you know, other than your little minions who are running in and out behind you, and I've got a pair as well. But without immigration, right, our OECD countries, our northern hemispheric countries are literally in a demographic tailspin. And we preside over 
the most livable, habitable geographies on the planet. Meanwhile, the red zones on this map contain the vast majority of the human population, right? China, Southeast Asia, India, Africa, and so forth. And even more perverse is that the majority of the young people in the world are in those red zones. So here we are moving, hurtling into this future of uh, you know uh, this stark divide between livable and unlivable zones. And not only is the majority of the world's population, but the majority of the world's future population is presently trapped in the wrong places. And I have some news for everyone. This is not something that COP26 is going to solve for us. Joe Biden's not going to fix this. Xi Jinping is not going to fix this. The UN is not going to fix this. It's only going to be fixed probably through bilateral, bottom-up, regional kinds of agreements, mostly kicking and screaming, you know, or through legal action and maybe a few generous states like Canada. But we've got billions of people that will probably need to be resettled in some way, shape, or form in some direction or the other. And there will be no supranational solution because if there is one vestige left of sovereignty in a world where you can't control uh, pathogens, you know, pandemics, you can't control air pollution from crossing borders, you can't stop cyber hacks and terrorists, the one vestige left of sovereignty at the end of the day is physically controlling your borders against the movement of people. And it's the one thing that no government is ever going to give up. We will have an accord on how to build a lunar colony and cooperate. A hundred countries will cooperate on how to build a, a lunar settlement. And we will still not have a global migration agreement, I swear to you. And that's this very sad fact. But there, you know, we are the solution, right? I mean, it is literally up to us individuals each country one at a time, those that can absorb migrants and those that are going to be supplying them. Supply and demand is how it's going to play out bit by bit by bit. Well, now I've got to keep us moving because I have a question I want to get to on the politics of this, but I think, um, uh, and sort of uh, national identity, but I, I want to I want to spend a little bit more time kind of understanding the context and, and go to Warda with a question just to understand, you know, so, you know, the, Frogs quantified um, and, and laid out some pretty big numbers, actually, really, for, for the number of people moving, uh, not even hundreds of millions, up to a billion. Um, and we, uh, or billions, and we actually in Canada, I, I want you to help us understand, Lorda, like, what is the opportunity and what are the risks for Canada? What do we need to be looking and mapping out and anticipating in all of this? That's an excellent question. I think Prague has done a fantastic job of providing an overview and where Canada fits into that overview. Um, so obviously we know the problem is fast increasing, um, but most of the folks I would still say that are undergoing these issues are internally displaced. And um, we still do live in a world where there are these borders that obviously Prague is mentioning. And so that's something important to keep in mind um, because it has implications for Canada. So I want to just, in answering that question, provide you with some context. So um, the first point being that most of these individuals will be internally displaced within their own countries. The second point being that much of the migration that will be taking place across borders for the next you know, few decades is going to be in six regions that is that do not encompass Canada. So it will be in Sub-Saharan Africa, East Asia, Pacific, South Asia, um, North Africa, Latin America, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, not Canada. There's no doubt an incredibly global situation and that's this, these stats are not to undermine what's happening globally, of course, but by the accident of our geography, by the accident of the way that, not the accident, but by the by virtue of the way that we've designed our system, um, we'll certainly have different challenges than places in the regions that I mentioned. And so um, we'll have domestic challenges and then we'll have migration challenges. And the migration challenges will be different because we have visa restrictions. There are 175 countries from where citizens cannot come to Canada, right? So if a person is having is facing issues such as drought, they can't just pick up and come to Canada. And we have all of these interdiction measures and we have carrier sanctions. So we have all of these physical borders, but we also have these invisible borders that most people don't see. And so 
Um, that's important in terms of looking at both the opportunity that it presents, climate migration presents to Canada, as well as the challenges. And herein lies our challenge. Our challenge is being proactive, right? Our challenge is being, having the courage to be leaders when we're not forced to be reactive on the migration piece. We will have to be reactive on the domestic piece because as you see what's happening in BC and the East, we have to react. But on the international migration piece right now, we're still in a position where the numbers are quite low. And so we will never feel the migration flows that these regions will feel. And that's just by virtue of the world that we live in. And um, the opportunity really here is to be proactive. Let's test the sound policy. Let's pilot it. Let's take the opportunity to be world leaders in this space. Canada has so much potential to be a global leader. And we must look at this climate migration as an opportunity on a platter. The need is here. We know folks are being displaced. We have the demographic need. We have low birth rates. We have the resources. We have the space. It aligns with our international um, vision. It aligns with our narrative of who we are as a country. This is the time to show international leadership. Climate migration is it. And eventually we will have to. Eventually the numbers will find themselves here. There will be irregular migration. People will overcome visa restrictions. People will find ways to get to Canada, but the numbers will trickle in. So right now the opportunity is to be uh, proactive and to test the policy and to make sure we get it right. So our opportunity, our challenge are sort of intertwined. It's to act before we have to. Um, and that's really, I think, the, the challenge for Canada. Can I just add, you know, I mean, the geographic point is so important. The majority of the human population is right around where I am right now in Asia, right? So four and a half to five billion people. Asia is the epicenter of global demographics and literally always will be, especially in, a, in the context of a declining world population. You know, we're reaching what I call peak humanity because fertility has plummeted so rapidly, even in developing countries. So I don't think the world population will actually even reach 9.5 billion people, which is significantly lower than the pre-pandemic forecast, precisely because the pandemic has been yet another baby bust that will pull down the total world population. So the majority of those people are gonna be in Asia and the, and the majority of the climate migrants in the world will be will be Asians. And by dint of geography, it will be more difficult for people from South America and Africa to leave their continents. We see what happens when they try, and it's a very horrific and you know uh, immoral uh, you know challenge that they face crossing the Mediterranean, crossing Mexico. Um, you know, there will be, of course, a lot of people who do somehow make it to Canada. And Canada, you know, is despite being in a way far away from those population centers is the most generous country already pound for pound per capita in terms of net inward migration 400,000 people is one percent of your population annually now the majority of it of course is skilled migrants uh so you're getting your pick of the litter you know you're 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 uh you know in sort of a winner in the global war for talent but if you, but in some indirect way, if you think about how chain migration works, um, and the fact that so much of the incoming sort of new immigrants to Canada are from South Asia, that is that does relate in some way to this issue, precisely because India and Pakistan, South Asia more generally, is not only the most populous region of the world. Let's remember that India's population alone is effectively equivalent to China's. If you bolt on Bangladesh and Pakistan, you're talking about 1.8 billion people, and it's far more climate stress than China is. So the real epicenter of the global outbound transnational climate shift, my climate migration shift. And, and notwithstanding what what Wada absolutely correctly said, which is that most migration is going to remain internal displacement and intra-regional because most people never are not lucky enough to make it out. But the South Asian populations are going to wind up moving northward into Central Asia, westward into Europe. And for those who can afford the plane ticket, across the Pacific in growing numbers to the United States and Canada. And then the remittance flows and the chain migration mean that even if it's not the desperate climate flight 
that does afflict many populations, there is a relationship, uh, you know, to the farthest reaches of the world, really, that Canada will have on that issue. Um, you're doing, you're both doing a really good job of anticipating my questions. It makes my job very easy, but you're sort of setting up uh, Prague what I, where I wanted to go next, which was, you know, it, a statement you made in your book that the world needs Canada to be a high migration society. Um, and I'm going to just pull the thread a little bit further with that to say like, and um, are people going to be moving to Vancouver or Churchill, Manitoba? <laughs> so uh, I, I say Churchill, Manitoba in the, in the book. And I, you know, mentioned Hudson Bay a minute ago is a place that could have, you know, sunny beach resorts. But, you know, I'm on my way. <laughs> okay. I'm just waiting for my passport to be issued. Uh, I'm sure one of you can handle <laughs> it. Um, but uh, so, you know, it's not really about a single destination. Here's the interesting thing. I mean, I literally do look at microclimates and I look at what the economic composition of a geography is, what are the demographics, cultural attributes, and try and paint a composite picture for each of these locations in the world. I do the same thing for Russia and for Japan and Scandinavia and so on and so forth. These pockets Canada is a very large pocket, though, of livability, you know, and I go to Siberia and I've spent a lot of time in random places in Siberia whose names I can no longer spell. And e everywhere you see a rising number of foreign, you know, sort of populations. And so when it comes to whether it's Canada or whether it's Eastern Europe, whether it's Russia, it's not about picking that one place and saying, I will go there and that's where I'll stay and retire and have a little cottage, a little dacha, and it'll be near the bay and so forth. Because the dynamics are very complex. And basically, it's you, you could wind up with the tragedy of the commons, where if everyone says, let's go to Churchill, suddenly, you know, Churchill is not going to be a really, you know, sort of a livable place. I mean, for example, you take Toronto. I write about Toronto in the book and I say, you know, Toronto can do no wrong. You know, it's kind of what the mood was about Toronto, say, six, seven years ago. Today, when I talk to people about Toronto, they say, well, we haven't built enough affordable housing. It's getting too expensive. I'm getting priced out. I need to move. And what about those gangs now? And there's an uptick in violence. And that's really worrying me. And, you know, who are all these people here now? And, you know, that kind of thing. Again, on a relative basis, is Toronto still the promised land compared to Rio de Janeiro? Yes, it is. But no place is going to be perfect if everyone just decides one day they're going to show up and crash the party. And, you know, it's sort of what Sweden fears most. And if you look at what's just happened in Swedish politics with their election, um, you know, they went from uh, being a place that had been to tolerated a fair number of migrants on a per capita basis from very you know distressed political geographies. Um, but now the government's saying, you know what? It's not working for us, right? You know, if you don't fit in, we're sending you back. You're going to have to complete school, learn Swedish, get a job, pay taxes and all this other stuff. We're going to make this, we're not going to make this an easy welfare kind of ride for you, right? So there's a lot of, of variables that one has to take into account beyond just the obvious fact that most of Canada is green on the map. There's just so many more complex socioeconomic political uh, dynamics to it but you know vancouver if you can afford it but you know make sure to fund the public services and, and the, you know keep the fires away um you know i i i know people who are buying land in uh, bc to start to plant vineyards and plant orchards and this kind of thing and um you know of course you have to be careful that the cli climate change is happening faster than we think you know and we look at again i mentioned my parents in northern california they live near endless um uh, uh um, almond orchards it's like what more inefficient crop besides avocados you know are there and there's no water in like, you know half of california so we really have to be prepared for mobility not just to save up money for that one move. And that's what I really want to impress upon people as, as strongly as I can, not to pour concrete. Do not pour concrete. You just don't know if where you're going is where you're going to be three, four, five, ten years from now. I think that's a hard thing to hear. Um, and I think, that, you know, it, it adds sort of this next level of complexity to this 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 broader issue we're trying to we're trying to kind of uh, talk through today but um 
I want to, you know, build a bit more just to, I want to talk about this notion of an ecotropolis, uh, which you introduced. And, and I sort of, you know, when I was, when I was, when I was reading your book, I sort of chuckled to myself about the notion of Churchill as an ecotropolis, but what are the, um, like, what are the ingredients? What is this? And, and where are these going to be? You know, a place like that, again, much of Canada would, would be able to meet the sort of the checklist of becoming an ecopolis, I guess we would say. So agropolis was what we were for most of humanity. You know, you eat what you kill, you grow your food locally, the radius of trade is limited. Then we became a petropolis society because thanks to the Industrial Revolution, long distance transportation, global supply chains, global agricultural and commodities markets, um, you know, and the lower lower cost of, of conducting all of that trade on a global basis meant that, again, you know, you have your avocados delivered to Australia off season uh, for your $22 avocado toast or whatever. Um, and now, you know, the, so the, 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 the sort of petroleum based economy made that possible. The ecopolis would be the next stage which is more of like, it's like a high-tech uh, uh, agropolis, meaning you can have, generate your own energy locally. So let's talk about energy, food, and water is really what it comes down to at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. Materials for building construction, you know, you can handle that, recycle plastics or whatever the case may be. But energy, solar power, obviously, geothermal, whatever, you know, sort of, sort of take your pick from the various renewable resources, water, rainwater collection, wastewater treatment, water recycling, uh, direct air cap capture, um, many, many ways to generate more local water supply and to waste less. Food, greenhouses, hydro and aquaponics, this kind of thing, right? So an ecopolis can be a, a circular, as it's called, you know, self-sufficient kind of settlement. And many, many places in the world could take a lot of steps to be more circular. So I live in Singapore. Singapore is a tiny island, one of the smallest countries in the world, 100% food and fuel import dependent. And here, because they're rich and far-sighted, they're saying, you know what? We're going to do the massive solar farms floating in the Straits of Malacca. We're going to use that energy to power fish farms and do, um, you know, sort of uh, offshore fish farming and, and sort of uh, you know, plant-based uh, food and all this stuff is all going to be done here now and even cell-based protein. And so basically they want to have 30% to go from zero to 30% of their food consumption. And trust me, people in this country eat a lot, like a hell of a lot, you know, <laughs> um, they're foodies, right? Like these people are the ultimate foodies, Singaporeans. Um, and they want 30% of their food to come through these you know, technologically driven sort of sources. So you can do it here. You can, I mean, again, they're wealthy, but you can do it anywhere because the cost of these technologies is plummeting. So it's really about the foresight. So lots of many parts of the world could become more of these ecopolis enclaves. You know that even some of the coldest countries in the world, like in Iceland and greenhouses, they're growing enough lettuce and tomatoes to meet their domestic consumption, mm -hmm. right? And that's like a really cold place. I mean, you know, it's cold in Canada too, but the point is that technology can overcome a whole lot of barriers. So what I wanna see happen is far fewer climate summits uh, with, you know, with, with 400 private jets flying to Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And I wanna take every penny of that and I wanna put it into adaptation. And mm -hmm. adaptation can be all of the technologies I just mentioned, or an adaptation can be getting people a plane ticket, right? To get them out of a place where it's no longer fair for them to be and move them somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, you know, Canada is a relatively wealthy and, and far um, forward looking country. I'd like to think um, we're not at the stage of building solar powered floating fish farms. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I wanted, I want to take this and sort of bring this back to Warda to ask, you know, like what is happening internationally to prepare for climate migration. Um, what is Canada doing and, and, and uh, maybe what is it not doing and should be doing? Sure, so let's start with what is happening globally in terms of other countries. Um, I agree with Parag that I don't think this is going to be uh, an international mass collaboration 
between countries in terms of finding a solution. We saw a lot of calls at COP26 about um, echoes of, you know, do something for climate migration. And I think that inertia is really good and valuable for pushing bilateral agreements, for pushing countries, for pushing grassroots movements. But I think that's where the action is going to be. Um, so what are other countries doing? The United States uh, has initiated a study under the Biden administ administration. There's an executive order uh, that was put into place on February of this year to study the impact of climate change on migration. And um, there was a report issued last month out of um, the Biden administration in collaboration with civil society that has specific recommendations. And those recommendations include things like aid, legislative reforms, exploring with Congress specific additional protections for those who are fleeing as a result of climate change. So um, all to say they're working on it. Uh, Sweden and Finland have in the past granted various forms of immigration status based on environmental disaster, depending on which governments have been in power. This is, as you can imagine, and I think we may get into this uh, with some questions that are popping up, a very charged issue. So it depends on who's in power. It depends on how folks package the issue. Um, so Sweden and Finland have had alternating governments that have granted some provision for, um, for climate migrants. Uh, Fiji has also made some commitments in the past, uh, saying that they will welcome climate migrants and then it has stepped back from those commitments and New Zealand has granted some pathways and then also it depends on which governments in, in power. So I think what you're seeing is countries wading into this domain a little bit, stepping back out, not sure, watching what others are doing. There's a collective action issue here, which leads us to um, Canada's responsibility. I think in order for Canada to be progressive and to be actually quite clever and smart in how we're going to approach this, we should think broadly and really, really get ahead of this issue. This is the defining issue of our generation. I mean, I think this is climate change is going to define, it's going to be the biggest challenge. It already is starting to be the biggest challenge and we can see this, it's inescapable. And so what better way to get um, familiar with what the challenges are, design policies started early. So what should we do? Well, Canada has responsibilities. It has responsibilities under international instruments. It also has responsibilities arguably under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom. So um, I imagine litigation is already starting to percolate and it will um, you know, obviously come to the forefront as more and more of these claims come to the, uh, the forefront. But we also have moral obligations. It's the right thing to do. When you see farmers who don't have anywhere to be and we have a need for those specific farmers and we have so much space, it's the right thing to do. It's also the right thing to do given our um, footprint right uh, in this space and so um, those are good reasons to act we also have signed not too long ago a global impact and so in 2018 Canada signed on to the first international agreements on refugee responsibility sharing um, and migration and these are commonly known as the global compacts. And this further establishes our international obligations to um, climate migrants. And there's a specific reference for the first time to uh, the nexus between climate, uh, between climate change and migration. And so we obviously have responsibility. I think that's a, almost a foregone conclusion at this point. Um, and what can we do? Well, we have several options and it depends on how bold we want to be. I think the best thing to do is get working. That's always the best thing to do when you don't know where to start. Um, we can be limited in scope or we can be quite expansive. Uh, we are able to uh, start piloting programs under a humanitarian and compassionate class. So Canada has these, um, this legislation under Section 25 of the Immigration Act, Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, which allows us to grant permanent residency based on humanitarian and compassionate considerations. And we can do this on a case-by-case -case basis, or we can do this on a public policy basis, where the minister says, this is a good public policy reason, I'm going to grant this group of people permanent residency, and then obviously they go through the immigration vetting processes for um, security, etc. So um, they are tailored to specific situations. We have 12 of these right now. We can do one for climate migrants. 
we should do one for climate migrants and we should see if it works. Let's get the data with an Immigration Refugee Citizenship Canada, which is our department that um, has uh, this mandate. Let's get the data and see what the numbers look like. You know, we are repeatedly approached the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers. What do the numbers look like? What's the data? Well, we don't have it because we have tracking this well it is it is we've, we've kind of covered in a few ways word on prog it's like climate migration is not some niche subset of migration yeah it is like a key driver so how we don't have that in there feels it feels like a, a, a missed uh, opportunity yeah exactly right. yeah. exactly and we can go broader right so it depends what's the appetite can we go broader can we um possibly take out a can we take out a requirement for personalized risk. So if we step back a little bit, um, the reason that climate migrants often don't typically fit into the refugee convention or the per protected person class is because there's this requirement that they be specifically, an individual be specifically targeted or specifically be at risk. Mm -hmm. And with climate migrants, there's some question as to whether that requirement is met. But there's nothing that stops um, a legislative reform where we say, you know, for the sake of climate migrants, we're not going to require that specific requirement. We can do that. We can be really bold and be the first country that's, that's you know, making a stance or taking a stance, excuse me. We can also allow resettlement from abroad. So we have this fantastic private resettlement model in Canada that's replicated all across the world. Canada has done a fantastic job of this. Um, we can try this for climate migrants. We really can be a leader in this, but what we need to do is to get on it. <laughs> and I know this is something that the that is on the minister's radar. I know this is something that's on Canada's radar. And so our hope is that they will start piloting these projects in smaller numbers, get the data, and then roll out large, ambitious programs. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, I actually, I think... Um, mindful of time, I've got a couple more questions we really want to get to, and a lot of great questions coming in from the audience. I um, want to kind of go next to the question of, um, you know, coordinating this migration. Um, and Prague, I think in your book, you mentioned, like, uh, we managed to coordinate a giant uh, a global lockdown. Now we can do the same for migration. And my instinct as someone who wrangles children was getting people to stay put is a lot easier. Sorry, wrangles children ineffectively, clearly. But... <laughs> I thought it was worth exploring a little bit sort of, um, you know, where you see um, where you see some lessons from that that great lockdown that we can take to a great migration. Well, there's a couple of things I'd say. One is that when we talk about mass migrations today, especially in a mainstream context or in the general public, people react or overreact uh, in, in a very negative way. They, they think that, this, that it's never happened before and that we're talking about a scary dystopian future. So I want to remind everyone of some universal facts. We're pretty terrible at managing the environment. We're pretty terrible at maintaining peace and stability. We're pretty terrible at achieving economic equality in the world. Here's something that we're really, really, really good at. Mass migration. It's probably the one thing that the human species has been best at for about 100,000 years. We move. A lot of us move. A lot of us have always moved. We're moving in larger and larger numbers. And guess what? Canada. America, you know, the most successful societies in the history of, the hum of human civilization are the ones that have been mass migration societies. So please, let's not everyone freak out uh, as if we've never had mass migrations before. It is literally what we are best at doing and what, and, 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 and what the, the role model uh, societies in the world continue to do very well. So we have to have that confidence. I have to make that statement so that we all are on the same page have the confidence that whether the cause is climate migration or whether the cause is politics, uh, the fact is that, and whether it's reactive or proactive, we've done it, we've been doing it for centuries, we've been doing it very well, and we've been stronger as a result. Those are utterly irrefutable facts. And it's with that knowledge and with that foreground that we now move into a brave new world in which there'll be more migrants for more reasons, from more places, but guess what? We can handle it and we have the need and the capacity. No better example of supply and demand coming together than encouraging more global population you know, resettlement. But now let's talk about the issue of what have we learned from the great lockdown? 
Well, there's one really big orthogonal kind of change that lies ahead, I hope, which is the digitization of migration. You know, when we talk about migration, even into the 20th century and, and some of the mass migration events, such as, you know, uh, World War II and the Holocaust, or again, the partition of India and Pakistan, the numbers that we have are kind of, you know, let's round to the nearest million, right? Well, something's very different this time around because now every human being pretty much to cross the border has to have a QR code on their mobile phone that is linked to some repository saying that they've been vaccinated, right? So the advent of the QR code and or you know biometric tools more generally um, are a real radical potential departure from the way that we have managed migration. Because if you can have that one fact about yourself on a secure blockchain, um, you know, shared across governments and recognized that, you know, you are vaccinated, all of the other things about yourself that are already in the public domain floating around somewhere anyway, you know, can also be organized in a secure online fashion. And that can greatly enable and facilitate the efficiency of, of international movement of people. So whether it's your travel history, criminal records, financial statements, education, certi certifications, whatever, right? Start to compile those, have it digitized, have it in a, have, have your passport be an app, right? You don't we don't really need these floppy pieces of paper. Right, everything that's in there can be digitized quickly and securely for the benefit of much faster processing and validation and verification of people's information. And we can even build in what I like to call Tinder for jobs, right? So, you know, if you can use a Tinder app, swipe left, swipe right, right, you know, you can actually have a global version of that for allocating people based upon what skills people have, where those skills are needed, and those kinds of things and start to actually, you know, I don't want to say in not involuntarily move people around. I mean, if you take this is already being done to some degree in Switzerland and Germany, you have these re refugees and asylum seekers come, especially in Switzerland, they're like, okay, what did you do in Syria? You were a doctor? Okay, well, we actually need a doctor over in that town. You want to head over there? Let's put you on a, on a train, right? Uh, you know, you were a farmer, we need it there. You can do that, right? We've got all the technology in the world. I mean, we live in the freaking metaverse. Okay, if we can live in the metaverse, we can have a really simple, you know, Tinder for migrants in terms of what, where, to, where people can be allocated. So I think the technology can help us. Yeah, and let's be clear though that our hope for Tinder for migrants yeah. is a better successful match rate than Tinder for dating. <laughs> Haven't tried it, but That's I'm okay. going to join you in I hoping for the, the best. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never hopeful. Well, so I, I, I want to move next to a question I want to put to both of you, because it's actually, I'm really dying to hear your takes on this piece. And actually, I've had some really interesting questions that, that follow this thread, basically, of understanding, you know, um, <clears throat> I'm going to start with sort of the anti-immigrant far-right movements we've seen kind of happen globally and really shape major policy decisions. Um, and I think some of the questions I have coming in sort of asked questions, too, about our relationship to immigration in Canada is really formed on sort of no that is it is controlled and if we move into a place where there's sort of um more uh stronger influx and, and higher volume and harder to control uh influx of, of, of migrants due to climate um we see these rising tides of sort of far-right sentiments you know what are the risks for canada which i which i acknowledge canada you know fortunately you know has sort of forged a strong post-nationalist identity i think you write about this in your book frog um you know, and, and generally, I think, has really accepted immigration as good economic policy. I, I think that's just absolutely true. Um, but I want to start with you, Warda. Like, what do you see as someone, too, I think, who lives and works really close to some of the sort of the politics of this issue? Um, how do you see that playing out for Canada? I think that's an excellent question. And it's um, it's really important to make sure we're aware of those sentiments and to work backwards and make sure we're not, you know, um, shaking the wrong trees. Um, but I think some of what's already come up in this conversation, and then I'll have to, I have two um, more uh, or two newer thoughts or two different thoughts. Um, one is we have to get the messaging out that this is really that we need migrants for post pandemic economic recovery. And we need migrants. We just need migrants. We can't sustain our tax base. Our birth rate is so low. 
we have demographic shortages, we have jobs that nobody wants to fill in Canada, and we have jobs that we can't fill in Canada. People want to, but we don't have the training. And so we are going to have to make it a, a mandate to get this narrative across. Um, and I think Canada's done a pretty good job of it, but we can do more. If we plan this well in advance, which is what we're advocating for, to have this proactive policy, you maintain some of that control, which is why it's so important to get ahead of this issue so that it doesn't lead to uncontrolled um, issues. And I think there's a, a genuine concern there with uncontrolled migration. So we will have crises, we will have to respond to situations like Afghanistan, but there are things that we see coming. And Climate migration is something that we have seen coming for the last three decades at least. So we don't have to let it be a crisis. And that's why it's really important to have the right planning in place to assuage concerns that people will have arising out of these movements. Um, and the two points that I'd make is in immigration po policy planning, Canada has done a really good job of forming this post-nationalist identity. And I, I personally think that the reason they've done a good job is because of the way that we have um, spread out our immigrants across the country. We have done a really good job of getting people in Churchill, getting people in Nova Scotia, getting people in Toronto. And yes, we have concentrations in certain cities, but um, there's been a, a significant amount of literature largely coming out of Europe that shows how we counteract right anti-immigration rhetoric about um, migrants in, in Europe specifically has been where those immigrants consistently interacted with the electorate, those populations did not have the same um, reactions to immigrants. And so Canada is, has been very, very clever in this, and I, I don't know if it was a policy by design or by happenstance, but we have designed programs for immigration across the country. And what this allows for is our simple everyday interactions where folks don't harden others into these characters that don't exist. So it's your teacher who's an immigrant and it's your doctor who's an immigrant and it's your you know, service provider who's an immigrant and vice versa. And so all of those simple interactions really go a long way in counter setting that anti-immigration sentiment we see um, in parts of Canada, but so much more globally. Um, and then the second thing is, I think we have to be very careful in the language we use and the images we use um, when we talk about climate migration. So when we talk about climate migration, we use language like herds, masses, influx, and we use images of people where they're just in large boats and things like that. There have been a lot of studies that show when we um, use people as masses rather than connecting with their individual stories, we spur those um, anti-immigration movements a little bit more. So um, I think journalism has a role to play, policy folks have a role to play, and conversations like yours, um, Kate, where you were asking about the specific case of Tetiota are really important because there's a man with his family trying to flee, avoid deportation. I think focusing on the individual stories is really important in countersetting um, the anti-immigration sentiments. That's fantastic. We're at time. I'm wondering if Prague, you can give us like a quick take on the same question and then we'll wrap it up. Absolutely. I mean, it's a huge theme in my work is pointing out that national identity is not something that is immutable. It's always changing and immigrants are a part of that change. And if you look at a country, you know, that doesn't have a, you know, a positive history in this regard, the way that Canada and America do, it's Germany. And in the last uh, 30 years, I've actually been living in and out of Germany since I was a kid. And uh, sort of, you know, I've witnessed the complexion of the country change so massively. And, and everything um, that Warda said applies to that country. It's just that it's more difficult to pull it off there. Learning the language, spreading people around, having them be comfortable with people that they've never, you know, sort of have any, had any exposure to through from any previous generation. It's all happening there. And in the melting pot cities, Frankfurt, Berlin, you have almost negligible far-right presence in politics. In fact, they just had a federal election 
And literally today, they announced their new government. It's a center-left government. The far-right parties that dominated the political headlines, uh, the AFD party, for example, are nowhere to be seen. So that nationalist populist xenophobia winds up being something that is a pretty short-term phenomenon because yes, it's, it, it grabs the headlines and it's racist, um, but it doesn't have an economic program attached to it. And ultimately the pragmatic solution is the one like Canada's where your immigration policy is part of your economic policy and populists don't have a solution to that. You know, their policies are quite literally suicidal on a national scale. So I don't worry so much about those about that backlash, provided that things are done in the strategic and in the tactical ways that Canada has done and Germany has done. That's fantastic. I want to thank you both. I'm going to summarize kind of two points you both made. I'm going to say Prague um, says, please, everyone, don't freak out. I think that's excellent advice. And I think Warda's advice, um, you know, if you want, she had a, she co-authored a, an op-ed in the Toronto Star recently on this that has some really clear policy um, uh, solutions that, that Canada can take towards, towards getting ready for climate migration. Um, and I think her point too, just about how we talk about our neighbours, how we talk, we talk about this issue is really important. So I welcome everyone listening to, to take those to heart. And I just, I want to thank you both for the most fabulous conversation. Um, and I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Thank you both. It was great.